with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, everyone. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. And if you're unaware, this is a music and arts podcast. Um, also, sometimes it veers into activism and social issues. Uh, as of late, it's been very music-oriented, but today it's not. Well, it sort of is. Um, my guest today is Patrick McCartney, or as I call him, Pat. He is an actor, and he uh, is... A, a prominent uh, theater coach and theater person around New York City. He was in Chicago. We met in Chicago, and he was doing stuff at the Steppenwolf Theater, Second City, all the biggies. And then in New York, he did UCB and a bunch of uh, others. He also has a one-person show that he's been doing called Sinister Kid. Well, not lately because of COVID, but uh, Sinister Kid, which was directed by also a Conversations with Matt Dwyer guest, Shira Piven, who is also a film and theater director. Um, it's a really great episode. I don't have a lot of actors on the show. Um, this is my second actor. Um, and and Pat and I, I said it was also music related because Pat and I used to always um, obsess over music in Chicago and we would share stuff and... Uh, the Jesus Lizard was in uh, sort of an inspiration for us as performers because David Yao was such a dedicated and committed man on stage and and dangerous and I think as young twenty somethings we were like I want to be that. <laughs> uh, David Yao, also a former guest of the show, um, and if you're a first time listener, please peruse my library. I've had a lot of uh, prominent musicians, some legendary. Uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore uh, was one uh, legend I would say I had. David, uh, uh, I can't think of Dave, Dave, Alvin, Dave Alvin. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a dad, and my brain doesn't always work so well. Um, so, yeah, and uh, David Paho from Slint, a bunch of stuff, a bunch of great artists and activists at my library. I'm very proud of my library. My conversation with Patrick McCartney is really great. He's also been, I forgot to mention, he's been in, like, uh, such films as... Uh, Elf, and he's appeared on Amy Sedaris's At Home with Amy Sedaris and a gazillion other things. He's a great actor, and his story is really, really riveting. Uh, he had some dark times, and he has some good times. <laughs> I'm trying to be vague, because why don't you just listen? It's a great conversation and a very inspiring. Here's Pat McCartney. Because I see people teaching improv and doing shows and stuff through Zoom, uh, and I'm an old guy, so I'm always just like, "How? How is that? Does that go well?" Because it just seems. Dwyer, we're the same age, and we have to evolve or die, man. You know, it's like I thought the same when I first started out doing the Zoom stuff. I was like, ah, oh boy, it's not going to work. Nah, 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 nah. But the energy and enthusiasm of the students has inspired me. And then to see the possibilities to be asked to teach and then to have to sort of show up and keep my mind open to what's possible within Zoom because the eagerness is there, right? And it all starts with the eagerness. When we were young improvisers, and there was only like three levels of improv, and the last level was Dell saying, just go up on stage. We were all so eager to make it work that if I wasn't meeting the challenge, then... If I, you know, it's it's just really like how I choose to approach it. And what I've learned is that there are a lot of possibilities. So, and especially with like vulnerability, um, because the camera's on just the face, and they're, you know, we're in our own environments. People are much more, at least in my experience, willing to be vulnerable. 
which I think is a pretty beautiful thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I did, I thought about it this morning. Uh, th- it's the same exact thing you thought of I, uh, or said. I, I was like, when I was young, I just wanted to do it, and I would have done it by in any situation. I mean, right. And I remember Pasquazi coaching a, a group we were involved in or I was involved in and we, you know, somebody complained about the space and he was like, lectured us on like, there is no bad place. Like it, you can make it happen anywhere. And, you know, we, I think as we get older, we, we start limiting ourselves. And that's something I've been trying to think about in general lately of like, I don't want to become limited in my thinking and perspective and locked into something because I'm old. Cause that's fucking death. It is fucking death, and I don't think it has to do with, I mean, I think some of it, you know, I did a play right before COVID hit, and it was a run by these wonderful people. It wasn't at the pit, it was at a different location, but, like, little things like the dressing room was shared by a few different shows, and I found myself getting a little resentful of that, and... It's tricky because you know you get to you get to a place where you just don't you know you're not in your twenties anymore and you don't want to be like around people's socks and shit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to. And then also, you know, we live in this. You know, there's so many factors about you know the theater and undressing. and changing into costume, it's just like, I was, you know, privacy and anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's always like, I'm just happy to be here and I'm going to make this work to the best of my ability. But with improv, yes, of course, any space can work for sure. It's like, we have to do that. I mean, yeah, and that's the thing, like reconnecting with that, with that sense of discovery and that eagerness is what's important for me to remember when I'm teaching is nobody's nothing as we're learning right now is permanent. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, I just, I, yeah, I see a lot of contemporaries of mine getting, um, I don't know, uh, stiff in their fifties and sixties, mentally stiff. And I'm like, and I find myself doing it as well. And I'm like, I just don't want this to happen. You don't have to. It's like, well, right. I won't play with improvisers now that are my age that want to do stuff about how their back hurts. Like, I'm just like, I'm not interested <laughs> in doing, you know, or even acknowledging it in the show. The great thing about improv is you can be any age. You can still be a child you can you know that endless sense of discovery and wonder and and staying fit and energetic is is part of your my job as a theater performer so you know to do something that talks about oh boy i can't move like i used to just feels so like a drag to me and sort of anti-improv you know, I need to continually approach it as like I'm just playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm sure at some point I'll be like, "All right, I'm done with this now." But I love it. It keeps me youthful. Why would I want to fucking stamp it or label it? Like, nah, I don't. <laughs> and you, but you started off, if I'm not mistaken, you. I started out that way in my twenties. I was like, nah, I don't want to. Now I'm actually younger. Yeah, I felt like I was pretty curmudgeonly. I felt like that was kind of almost the way I had to be to be involved in comedy and improv. And like I was was attracted to those, like Dorothy Parker's little salty quips and stuff. I was like, oh, that's the way you got to be, huh? Right, of course. Yeah, nobody ever really, at least as far as I know, was like, just play like a five-year-old. Um yeah, of course, I was the same way. It was like a persona I would put on in order to, I don't know, fit into, and you know, get the label of old soul. I was always hoping for. I was always hoping for that. I was maybe I heard that once, and I was like, "All right, I'm in the club. I got old soul. 
So then I latched on to, I don't know, who knows what we hear in our our 20s, just all that. Yeah. It's, For me, you know, yeah. Yeah, I felt like I was, uh, and I think that's part of the process of growth as you uh, sort of cop onto these attitudes and, you know, uh, I'm, I, I'm, the word is not coming to me, but, you know, you sort of try to be your idols and... Uh, yeah. It's... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I'm always kind of amazed when I see an artist of any genre who's in their 20s, like early 20s, and they're fully realized, like their voice is fully realized. I'm like, how the fuck did oh my you God. pull that off? I don't know. I have no idea. Good parents, good, uh, no drugs. <laughs> Some kind of healthy upbringing. Some kind of, like, really healthy. It must be, like, I'm sure money helped and... A little, very little trauma, and Did you a have, lot of oh, self-esteem boosting. Yeah. Did you have? Because I don't know much about your childhood. I've heard like I had all the opposite things of that. No money, no esteem. Did you not get along with the the parents? I loved my parents, and I still love my parents. My mom passed. Uh, she died. Uh, but my dad is still here, and um, but it was uh, it was a pretty dysfunctional home. I, I, I got to be honest, and um, we aspired to. I think we had delusions of grandeur when it came to wanting to fit in with people with money. Um, but we didn't really have money. We would at times have money. There was sort of a narrative that I think they wanted to fit into. Um, which we they just didn't fit into, you know. Like I was from the West Side, but back then, yeah, uh, I think they wanted to fit I, in with people on the East Side. I, I, because somebody at one point I heard you lived in the Dakota, which I own the only. Oh no! Why? How is that? A, that's a weird rumor to have heard. But that was like that's good. I like that. <laughs> well, I lived in a. <laughs> I lived. Yoko used to come by and babysit. Oh, okay. And Andy and Andy Andy Warhol and I would go for walks in the park. Uh, no, I never lived in the Dakota. I lived on the Upper West Side. I lived on 89th Street. The Dakota's on 72nd Street. I remember the day John Lennon was killed. Um, I was going to school on the East Side. So I would take the bus across town. Uh, and my mom was like crying at the kitchen counter. And it was seventh grade. And she was crying and she was like, boys. Because I used to listen to the Beatles a lot. I used to listen to them on 8-track. I had an 8-track. But I would listen to their like, you know, when they were... Uh, you know, doing their Chuck Berry thing um, before they really got interesting. But uh, but it didn't quite resonate for me. She was crying, and then the whole city just sort of went uh, in that area. It was like all these people came, and they were holding a vigils in front of his, in front of that building, the Dakota. The thing about the Dakota with my the apartment I grew up in, it was rent stabilized. So it was, it was cheap for New York City, um, and I think the Dakota is also, which is a big issue in New York, and it always has been. I imagine Chicago has similar rent laws. I don't know. Chicago seems to be one of the better rent cities that I've dealt with, having lived in all three. Uh, just Chicago was so fucking cheap. It was like. I mean, oh I, yeah. I, I I just I can't like our lives in the, in the early '90s in Chicago. Just it, you couldn't. I don't think you could live the way we did and like be creative and do what you want with you know today. Like I don't know how artists move to these major cities and make it happen with rent. Well, I think that'll return. That sort of way of living will return once this COVID thing is over, unless. You know, yeah, I think that'll have to return. I mean, it's, when I look at New York real estate now, and they're still asking 
the prices. I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, everybody's fucking leaving. Everybody's leaving the city. It's going to return to, like, a low, the crime will be high, but it'll be affordable, at least to live in Manhattan. Now I live in the Bronx, and I'm paying, uh, you know, a, a lot of money to live in a city that has no theater right now. So I'm a little bit like, why am I in a in New York right now because you know I stay here because I'm a theater person but so it's a hard time yeah I mean you live in New York so you can you know go to the theater be a part of the theater you know hope to get a gig on a TV show teach all those things you um, how did you go from because when I first met you you were um, you were uh, you were kind of intimidating to me because you were like also like everyone was like man he's that guy's a real fucking actor because no one at second city considered no one considered themselves real actors at second city or that was kind of like the the i I would say the chip a lot of us had on our shoulders but you were like doing like legit theater did you how did you end up crossing over to improv or were they all sort of an interest to you uh, um, I'm trying to remember when we met. I was doing, uh, I was at an acting conservatory, but I didn't really like actors. I just thought actors were fucking boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> and. And, and then when I got, I mean, I, you know, of course, I, I, you know, people would tell me I reminded them of somebody I admired when I was younger, and they all had worked at Second City, and I was like, I guess I should go to Chicago, because I got kicked out of acting conservatory after one semester, so I was like, I'll go there, and I'll be able to party and perform at the same time often. Why did you get kicked out? Um, I, I failed speech class and I was yeah, I'd gotten kicked out of boarding school in my junior year for getting caught in the girl my girlfriend's dorm and telling a housemaster to fuck off <laughs> and and so that was pretty clear. SUNY Purchase kicked me out after one semester. I know I failed speech. And, well, they take on 20 students, and then five people graduate. So the acting conservatory programs are sort of notorious for kicking people out for whatever criteria they have. And, you know, in retrospect, I can understand and appreciate that because you sort of you know, the kinds of actors that conservatory creates are need to be, uh, you know, emotionally, what we were talking about earlier, that sort of person in their 20s that is so realized. And I certainly wasn't that at all. I wasn't even sure I wanted to be an actor, really. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be able to do both. So that's why I think Second City and improv and all that was appealing to me. And was that the main reason you went to Chicago, or was there a combination of reasons? Yeah, well, Steppenwolf was also appealing to me, because Steppenwolf was that sort of, it was like the opposite of conservatory, in that, you know, the history was, they had all, they were doing a type of theater that was very raw and, and rock and roll and... Not so. I remember when I was at SUNY Purchase, a teacher was complaining about seeing John Malkovich in Burn This and saying, you know, he was hurting his throat when he screamed and he, all this stuff I thought was just, and I remember as she was talking, I was like, that's the kind of actor I want to be. That <laughs> kind of, yeah, I want to be that one. And then you become, you know, you start, at least for me, I start acting and it's, and it's hard to sustain a performance every night if that's the kind of actor you are. So what they train 
at conservatories is like an actor that can sustain a performance eight nights a week. And that that's why it makes sense, right? So you have, you know, uh, uh, you're fit, you're, your throat's not going to get all clenched and you're, you know, you're, it's almost like robotic, but it's not, you know, uh, I hate to say it's robotic, but a little bit, but you know, they need parts to fill and they need professionals and they need easy robots. A lot of robots. Soon robots will be on, the only people on, the only things on Broadway. <laughs> robots. <laughs> And movie stars. And you ended up doing some stuff at Steppenwolf, didn't you? I ended up uh, understudying one show uh, called Mojo, uh, and I got to go on, and that was with Mike Shannon and... Pat Healy in that? No, Pat Healy wasn't in that. Pat Healy and Nick Offerman, they were... They were also, around that time, I think they had just been looked at by, like, suddenly actors like that, even Adson, I think, was being approached by Steppenwolf. I'd heard he got offered a part in their production of A Clockwork Orange, but turned it down. Um, So they were starting to think more outside the box as far as the types of actors they were looking at uh, and the improvisers. Were were part of that, but I was at Center Theater Uptown, and I got I was part of their ensemble. And then when I got hired at, uh, to tour with Second City, I quit Center Theater. And then yeah, so I I, I would do both. I would improvise, and uh, and then I would miss doing a play, and then I would do a play, and I would miss improvising. Um, so I think it helped develop me into a more well-rounded performer. Yeah. That's what I think was the, the help of all that. Yeah. I actually, I auditioned for Mojo and uh, I embarrassed myself. Because oh. you had to, it was a Cockney accent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I couldn't. It's Jed Butterworth. I couldn't. Uh, I feel like you and I auditioned for the same part. I don't know why. I feel like I saw your name on the list. And anytime I saw Michael Shannon's name on an audition call sheet, I was like, well, there I go. <laughs> it's like, I'm not getting this if it was for the same part. Did you understand? No. Did you understudy him? No, no, no. I understudied some Irish. I understudied two parts in that. Um, a guy named Evan Handler who went on to do like Sex in the City and. Uh, and um, some Irish actor named Ristard, who's quite a charming fella. And, uh, yeah, no, Mike was, Mike played, I can't remember, it was so long ago. He played a part, he played like the, my, my characters, the, the Mickey characters, Buddy, the only friend Mickey really had. Uh, he was like the the janitor. It was a good part. It was uh, I don't think it was a great production. They did uh, it was early Jez Butterworth, uh, but it was fun and it was great to be on that stage and it was super surreal and inspiring and you know it was nice. Once I got that one checked off my box, I was like, all right, Chicago, I think I'm good. And then I moved to LA, and then I moved back to New York, and we, I was, I got involved with the first incarnation of UCB on Twenty Second Street. Yeah, because when I lived in New York briefly, I would see you around. I was uh, not a happy person in New York City. <laughs> you didn't like New York. Where'd you live in New York? I didn't even know you lived in New York. I lived in Spanish Harlem. I was there for. Uh, I was there for about six months and then I went back to Chicago and then I went to Vegas for a bit and then I, I went back to New York and I just, I, I don't know what it was. It just didn't click with me. Uh, yeah. It, and uh, I don't know. There were some other elements uh, that just were kind of like weighing on me and I just was like, I got to get out of here. I didn't feel, I felt certain circles I were in 
were restricting my creativity to try to put it <laughs> vaguely. Uh, and I just, yeah. I, I felt suffocated and I just had to go. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I hear you. I felt a bit more, which I never expected. I would feel more freedom in Los Angeles, but I did. And I like, um, I, I feel like this sort of the seclusion here that you, that you have that you're sort of forced into really helped me focus on writing and i feel like i developed uh hugely as a, as a creatively just by the weirdness that can be la sometimes and i you know a lot of people hate it i was i've been grateful for it because i spent hours a day at writing which That's i was great i wasn't able to do in new york did you, how long, when did you come to LA? I, cause I heard you were here. I feel like I bumped into you once and then you like vanished. Yeah. So I was there twice. I was there, um, in my, like when I was, golly, uh, let me do the math. So I was there from like 26 to May 27 to twenty. Nine, and I worked with a wonderful acting teacher named Ivana Chubbuck, who really changed a lot for me, even though I'd had great teachers in Chicago and great experiences just doing stuff in Chicago. Ivana was helpful for me. And then I moved back to New York. So I met a girl. At, oh, I came back to do a play that Shira Piven directed. And I met a girl and... All my friends were here, right? And UCB was, I don't know if they had a space, but there was a lot of opportunity here. And I got a job teaching at UCB. So I moved back to New York and was able to do Conan's and teach at UCB and do ASCAT. And then I think the time you saw me, though, you know, when I was in my... About thirty three, my 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 alcoholism really began to take off, and I just went off the grid. And I did stuff like would move back to LA. I'd move around a lot, what we call pulling geographics, so I could, you know, feel like there was a solution in other places rather than deal with my own demons. Is that which I learned to do at forty three? So it took me a long time to get sober. Hi, I'm going to take a break from the conversation real quickly just to say, if you can, please subscribe to the show, write a review, and rate it on iTunes. That will greatly help me. Also, if you really like the show and you want to become a bigger part of the Conversations with Matt Dwyer community, you can become a Patreon subscriber at uh, patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. And you can go to all things Matt Dwyer. You can go to thematdwyer.com and find links to social media, merchandise, and everything. I am solely an independent artist putting out this podcast. I don't have a network. I don't have a lot of commercial money. So word of mouth, telling your friends, writing about my show on social media or rating it and reviewing it all help me greatly. Or become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. Now let's get back to the conversation. Is that a common thing where people just move? I mean, I've done that in my life where I I would move thinking that would solve things. But is that also... It's common for alcoholics, for sure. It's like, you know, there's they they talk about a pattern in alcohol. I mean, my grandfather was an alcoholic in recovery, and he had a pattern um, before he got sober where he would... He moved out to the West when he was... uh, probably in his mid-20s, and he would just work at a ranch for five years, and things would start out great, and then by the end of the five years, he would have lost all the money, and his drinking was out of control, so he'd get up and move, and then he'd work at another ranch uh, somewhere, you know, close, like in another part of Colorado or Montana or Wyoming, and then five years would come up, so there's that pattern of the five years. For me, yeah, I was doing quite a bit of geographics um, because I would blame the environment rather than take a look at myself. That, And then, of course, there's that wherever you go, there you are thing that 
uh, alcoholics have to sort of discover when, when, for me, I had to discover when I was in recovery, like, you know, I have to find a peace where I'm at. It's not going to be, uh, not that changing your environment can't be a very helpful thing, uh, but if it's about escaping, you know, the the the, con, the the continual pattern of of troubles I get myself into, then I think that would be relevant to to alcoholism. Was there anything else other than uh, booze? Was there hard drugs? Also? Oh yeah, I was a heroin addict, and then I was a cocaine addict as well. But it all started with alcohol. Because uh, it, it just one of the. I remember us once, and this is probably 94, you and I at the Ale House on a slow, quiet night there, and you, yeah. you offered me you offered me heroin, and if wow. I... Wow. And you, you, like, snorted it, and you... I, yeah, I just snorted it. Um, I, I only said no because... I uh, I had a rehearsal. I, <laughs> I had a rehearsal the next day. Otherwise, because I was, there is that, especially in the '90s, there was a curiosity, like that. There was a resurgence and a curiosity with it, uh, and I think it was seen as dangerous and cool again. Uh, and yeah, I probably. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh no, I I probably would have tried it, and I'm grateful I didn't because I, knowing myself, I'm like. It's one of those. I know that that's one of the things that would have taken me to a, a, a dark place. I'm sorry I put you in that position, first of all, and um, that was that was awful of me. I wasn't. I hope you didn't think I, that's. What, I mean, I was just. It was a, a not at all. I, I but mean, uh, yeah, you're right. I I know that what led to it for me was the hope of. Connecting with the beats and all that, but uh, it just attached itself to me along with liquor and everything else. It's in my genetic makeup. Um, but yeah, I loved heroin, man. I loved it. But no, I never shot it. I just uh, snorted it. Maybe one time I shot it, but it's. Uh, it, I wasn't shooting it. Yeah, it's imp- it's. Crazy how strong the myth of the Beats and and Bebop and those guys that that the myth of it leading to some magical sort of creative world. I mean, I would say that, that myth still exists today, and it's like, but no one looks at the rest of the story. It's like, yeah, sure, Parker did some great stuff, and then it got terrible. Oh yeah, it's like watching uh, watching. There's a great doc on John Coltrane chasing train. Where, you know, all his great albums were written when he quit dope. You know, that 10-year period um, where he wrote Love Supreme and, and uh, Alabama and, and uh, all the other really great stuff he wrote all sober, trying to connect to some sort of spirituality. You know, the same with Eugene O'Neill. He purposely stopped drinking so he could write, and he ended up writing what I think are his really great plays in that period, like Long Days and... Uh, la, 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 la. Other ones that I wish Ice, I could just Iceman? rattle off the top of my brain. Ice Man, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like where I was. I just it was almost like a pro. I don't. I, you know that's that's so true. I talk about that a little in my show, like the legends I grew up wanting to emulate, and how I, I just pay attention to the to the those part of the stories and never like even Raymond Carver has such a wonderful poem called gravy or just gravy where he's dying. And he just writes about how grateful he is in the last 10 years of his life, which he spent sober and how it's all been just gravy. I mean, for me, it's the same way. I've never been uh, more creatively ambitious and excited and self-realized as I have been in sobriety. So it's just all bullshit, all that, 
all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I've always pointed to, like, to me, Tom Waits did his most interesting and original work once he cleaned up, and then he got fucking really weird <laughs> and great to me. I like his early stuff, but it's like, you know, it's emulating a lot of other things, and it's like once he got into the Rain Dogs, Frank's Wild Years trilogy, shit got really, to me, that's when it. I really fell in love with his music. And that's oh yeah for sure is that when he got sober I didn't know like I I think I saw once and you I knew he had gotten sober but I wasn't sure when um, yeah I th- and I always yeah I, I think that like he was still fucking like there's that trilogy of albums and I always forget which one is first I think it's Rain Dogs but he was still kind yeah. of partying in that mode but that's when he started getting out of it and I think his wife. Uh, helped get him Kathleen Brennan Yeah And I think she also Is the one who Hipped him to a lot Of the his new influences um, Yeah That helped him just And uh, to me That's Tom Waits Like that's who That guy really is Creatively Is the sober guy Oh yeah Yeah I love that stuff That stuff is great Sometimes I'll go back And listen to like The Heart of Saturday Night But It's like The other stuff Wow What is this What is what is going on? You know, this is exciting. Um, so how how uh, deep did it go? Like, how far did you go into all these things? Like, what was, I guess, what was the point where you were like, I got to get the fuck out of this addiction? <sighs> it took a long time, took years of denial, took many low bottoms, many bottoms, many bottoms, many bottoms. Finally, I ended up going to Wyoming by myself. I never went to a rehab. I went away to Wyoming, blaming the city. Um, I thought the city, I thought, you know, being in New York, that must be the problem. So I went to Wyoming where there was a cabin, and I stayed at the cabin, but I didn't stop drinking. And I was there a lot longer than I thought. I would be. Um, my mother was not talking to me. My whole story should have been Patrick went to Wyoming. You know, he was talented. But, you know, drugs and alcohol, would you pass the brie? That should be the story. It should be like, oh, well, you know what? Another one's gone. But I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm done. And I always sort of imagined in the back of my head that, I just can't, you know, at some point I'm going to get sober. At some point I got to get sober. I, I I had a hard time thinking of not drinking in the world. I just love drinking. And it was such a part of, like, what I associated, um, you know, good times to be. And Especially in getting, Chicago, not to interrupt. But oh, like, my God. It was very, yes. I mean, the whole, we would do a small show or whatever, and we partied. We celebrated like it, we fucking just played Carnegie Hall or something every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we would do the same shit after Ascat. We would go to McManus for, oh my God, for, you know, until the wee hours of the morning, like we just fucking played Carnegie Hall. Yeah, and uh, strangely, they did play Carnegie Hall. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure it wasn't as funny. We would do ASCAT shows, and, and yeah, it would be all night at McManus. It's like almost the show was, a, like, secondary. I was watching the, the Beasties documentary the other night, and they were talking about when they were on the license to Ill tour and getting everything they wanted from Russell Simmons and how they would, um, at some point, they were just like, I can't wait for the show to fucking be over so I can go party. And that's when, you know, but for me, it didn't take that awareness. I wish I'd had that awareness. It took years. And then I took, like, me get, removing myself from any opportunities to perform and ending up at a cabin in the woods in Wyoming, being there way too long. Uh, I was also on a thing called Suboxone, which I'd been on for years to help. I stopped using heroin, and then I got deep into cocaine, but I was on Suboxone, which is a helpful thing for people. But I was forced off Suboxone in Wyoming because you just can't get it in Wyoming like you can in New York. So I was, but I was still drinking. So I was still drinking. I got back to New York after begging and pleading. 
and but still not quite ready to admit I was an alcoholic and started going to support groups and then I remember that actor died uh, Phil Seymour Hoffman and I remember thinking wow that guy had everything that I feel I deserve so that for me was profoundly um had a big impact on me because I, around that time or in that moment I did this thing where I looked inside and I was like I should just try and not drink today and then I started to do that and then I and then my life began to change day by day uh, how so but it is one day at a time I mean Philip Hoffman you know was sober for years yeah. What? Yeah. Just to back up, like, what were you doing in Wyoming? Were you just in a cabin drinking, or was did you? Like- I was in a cabin drinking. Yeah, I was like uh, the Shining, except without um, my wife and the kids. <laughs> it, and I was watching. I was watching a lot of DVDs because I'd go down to the library and watch DVDs. I think I submitted to uh, Seth Meyers' late night show because that was just going on the air. So I put together some kind of bullshit packet and sent that in um and i just sort of wallowed and talked to ghosts you did. and barely went outside um and i'd watch dvds and the one that had the most impact on me was buffy the vampire slayer because i'd never seen it and at that point i was just like breaking and I would watch that. I'm not sleeping. And I would watch Buffy. I watched it all backwards, like season seven through season two. And it had a super big impact on me in that I sort of identified with the vampires and their need for blood. I became, started to identify as an alcoholic through through vampires, which is a line I, 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 I used in the show I wrote. Um I thought to myself, that is, I love the writing on that show. And I was like, it was also inspiring me to think along the lines of, you know, I need to create, I need to create, I need to create. I want to be able to write something like this or be a part of something like this. So, and I also was, it would make me cry. That show would just make me cry. Um... So, yeah, that's what I did. I cried a lot, watched a lot of Buffy, and uh, started to come to grips with the fact that I needed help. Before I went to Wyoming, I had uh, I reached out. I finally said out loud to somebody I had a drinking problem. I thought I had a drinking problem. It was, I thought. And she led me to a guy who took me to AA meetings, but... Oh, I'm sorry, Uh, to meetings, to to support group meetings. And I would, uh, I didn't listen. I was drinking at at the support group meetings or before the meetings. And then I went away to Wyoming, and then I got back, and I started going back to support group meetings. And then I was determined to uh, change my life. Was it, uh, I don't know if you burned any bridges in the theater world on the, on the, but was, did you have to like work your way back in with some of those circles? Matt, I didn't just burn the bridges down. I burned the bridges and then I went back to make sure that the bridge was properly burned. <laughs> and if the bridge wasn't burned, I would throw more gasoline on it. To make sure every inch of the bridge was completely burned. Uh, yeah, I mean everything. All the people that I've managed to reconnect with in sobriety, it's I've been very lucky. Um, and the path where I'm at right now, I didn't see ever coming back into improv. You know, I was. It, it's all sort of. Uh, very, I do. I try not to think about it too much because 
it's just uh, it's 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 a, it's 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 a blessing to have uh, so many incredible reconnections and people I know back in my life and I mean little things like I'm working with this improv group that I had helped start back in 2000 that I left back in 2002 or something and they were still doing it when I got sober and got back with those guys and those guys are like brothers to me reconnecting with all sorts of people and bridges I don't know what the bridges are but there it's just the connecting with the people that has been profound and beautiful and some people you know they don't quite you know the most important was my mom being able to reconnect with her and her seeing me sober before she died that was without a doubt the most important one because we had had everything had fallen apart as far as that relationship was concerned so that was that was the most important bridge when did uh when did you how long did it take you to start working on Sinister Kid and what inspired that well Sinister Kid I my mom had died I got in a I fell in love and then um that ended and then I realized I hadn't quite processed my mom and I was had some things I need to work on as far as how I dealt with my relationships with women um, and it was very hard for me so it was probably the closest I came to losing my sobriety so I put myself through uh, the creative pro- process I just put it into creative I didn't really want to tell my recovery story I wanted to do a show about my mom but I checked in with some people I trust and they encouraged me to to combine the two stories, which I did my best to do. And then I was working with a wonderful woman named Dominique Salerno, who's not in recovery, but was guiding me through the process of creating the show in the beginning. And then I got a draft to Shira Piven, and who I'd worked with 20 years earlier. And she was somebody I was trying to reconnect with early in sobriety because I was trying to pull her back into theater because I know she just does television and film now. But I was hoping to get her back into the theater. And (laughs) she just happened (laughs) to have a window of time, which was this time last summer. And she agreed to come in and direct it. And we worked for 12 days. And we continued to work on the script. And then I did... Uh, it as a show um, and now we're working on it still uh, Shira and I we work on on developing it even further farther further I don't I don't even know my dad always <laughs> my dad's always like knows the answer to that one every time I say the word farther or further I always get it wrong because my dad's voice is in my head going, it's farther. <laughs> it's further. I was, yeah, the whole time I, because I sort of watched the, uh, well, when it, you started doing it and stuff, and I was always like, so I, I assume Shira went to New York to to work with you? She came to New York, yeah. She came to New York and stayed with me one night, and then she stayed in Queens with her friend Gus, this great poet, Gus. And it was amazing. It was so incredible. It was just like, it was a lot of work. And it caused me a tremendous amount of anxiety. But having Shira to guide me, and we fell right back into, like, she knows how to get in my head. Because I'd worked with her a lot in my 20s, you know, as a, as she was my director in many things. In fact, in Chicago, she directed me in something. But she she knows how to get in my head. I, I really respond to her 
Um, and it was, it was for me. It was like picking up right where we left off. She was amazing, and she had vision, and I trusted. Yeah. And and it was a really, um, I can't say it was a fun experience, but it was a really cathartic and interesting experience um, and helpful. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine there was times where it was uh, painful, and but yeah, that's yeah. I had to go through it, though. I had to go through it. And I had to go through it in a way that I wasn't going to pick up again because I was really close to picking up again because I was dealing with heartbreak. And I was dealing with heartbreak, and I wasn't sure if it was about the girlfriend or if it was about my mom. And it was overwhelming, and I knew a solution, but that solution didn't work for me anymore. So I was lucky to have the opportunities and the stages. You know, Ali was super generous with the stage at the pit uh, and the rehearsal space. And I was blessed to have all that in New York City. So why not? You know, why not just fucking do it? That's great. I kept hoping you would bring it to uh, L.A., which I was assuming was probably in the works before everything went to shit. Yeah, we were talking about that. We were talking about where to bring it, and yeah, and then everything went to shit, yeah. When it uh, when we g- get through the shit, <laughs> do you uh, plan on remounting it and maybe getting it out west and maybe Chicago or any place else? Maybe, you know, maybe. We'll see where we're at. I mean, it was... I mean, yeah, right now I'm trying to turn it into a more visual thing. You know, I'm trying to turn the story so we can shoot it somehow, maybe with a different person playing me. Uh, But, yeah, the show still exists, and if I can, you know, lose the... 400 pounds I've put on in COVID and get back into shape, which of course I can, but uh, it all seems so to focus on doing theater right now. It's, it's hard because it depresses me because I really need to be on a stage and I've had to readjust my thinking. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to bring it to LA for sure. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time, Patrick McCartney. Thanks for having me, Matt Swire. So good to talk to you. This is like the first time we've talked, and it happens to be on your podcast. <laughs> hey, real quick before we go, where can people find your social media and all the things that are Pat Patrick McCartney? You can go to patmccartney.com, or you can follow me on Insta at the Patrick Max. Awesome. Thank you so much, buddy. Thank you, Matt. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Remember to rate and review it. And if you like, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. Also, Listen to my friend's podcast, Hunk, by Mike Bridenstine, and Kill Gallon's Pub with Joe Kilgallen. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you again.